City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Ah, there we are, the acres and acres. It's ridden over them and it's a cold wind out there, let me tell you. Um, but I got a bit fooled. I walked, saw some sun in the sky and I thought I don't even need gloves this morning, but I came through one of the coldest parts under, under the Royal Parade and paid the price. Uh, there we are. But anyway, it's uh, City Limits where it's the third Wednesday of the month, so we'll be talking housing today. We're going to be talking to Shane McGrath from the Housing for the Aged Action Group. Going to be talking to um, Catherine and Jack, who are both public housing advocates and tenants, and they'll be talking to us later in the program as well. And uh, we've got Kia in the studio. We've got Karina. I'm Kevin Healy. And uh, <coughs> Kia, it's Kia with the H, she tells me, because Kia. Um, I think we- your hearing's <laughs> going, Kevin. It's Heo. Oh, Heo. Heo, but it does sound like a very, well, um, I, thought it was I suppose, um, kind of a harsh, harsh. Heo starts with a K. Ah, there you are, you and see. And that's how it picks up phonetically anyway. So thanks for having us. We're just here to help. Well, that's got the show <laughs> so, off to a big start. And the theme <laughs> is housing today. Goodness. That's right. Kevin, just a question. When you yes. were right, well, when you were coming in without gloves, yes. were you on your bike? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. You're going you're gonna to get chillblains. Yes. Well, I have, I think. Do <laughs> <laughs> you want a cup of tea, Karina? After yeah, all I'd that? love I'll one, I'll just uh, the cups. We'll pour a bit of tea. Um, I, I was going to kick off by um, being highly critical. Of, That's unlike uh, you. Yeah, it is, but it's, uh, I have to be in this case, unfortunately. Here you are, Karina. Just, did you, you've, oh, got a, you've got something, haven't you? I've brought in a cup of tea and also made myself a coffee this morning. Oh. So alternative milk, alternative dairy with some soy and oats. Oh, well, this is straight <laughs> green tea this morning, so oh. here we are. So oh, no milk? No, oh, no, no, no. No. I'm always double parked in the studio. I've always got a black no, coffee no, in no, front no. of me and then I can't say no, no to no. your delicious green. Anyway, well, highly critical, well, you say. Are. I was going to... Um, so I was going to be highly critical of Extinction Rebellion over in England, and particularly a member of theirs called Patrick Thelwell, uh, who doesn't throw well, unfortunately. He's the bloke who last week um, at a, at a, uh, in York um, threw uh, eggs at uh, our new king and, uh, and Camilla. And <laughs> what I want to be critical about is that he missed. Oh, no. Yeah. So I think... I think we should recommend that Extinction Rebellion in England have throwing training. Throwing training. Yeah. Mm. So next time they don't miss. Next time. You can't put all your eggs in one basket. No, well, they put them all on the road, but Miss, <laughs> <laughs> Miss Charlie, what, what a stroke of real bad luck. Um, yeah, but I, I did want to go on. Did you have anything to say, by the way? You, you just oh, no, that, I yeah. was uh, sitting in on uh, this morning's uh, radio. So as I was mm. heading over to the studio this morning, we were listening in to the breakfast show with mm. Claudia. Mm-hmm. And then when I started um, to join with my cup of coffee, we were able to see a couple of the guests. So she has a lot of uh, people joining her throughout the mornings. 
physically coming to the studio. So that's always a wonderful experience for people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Okay. Yeah, I heard most of Cladders. I had to leave home about quarter past to uh, to ride here. Um, now, the there we are getting serious now. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we probably noticed that it, um, just Justice Melinda Richards in um, presumably our Supreme Court. Uh, in fact, it says the opening Supreme Court, so it was our Supreme Court. But she she found that Vic Forrest, whom we've always been critical of anyway, I mean, we, we keep pointing out that the word Vic Forrest in a government department, one takes for granted that that's, its role is to protect our forests. But of course, as we know, its role is the absolute opposite. It, uh, it's a misnomer. It tears them down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, it's, that's what it does. Uh, but she found they had failed to follow the law and protect endangered greater gliders and yellow belly gliders uh, in East Gippsland and in the Central Highlands. And she said Vic Forest timber harvesting operations in East Gippsland and the Central Highlands present a threat of serious or irreversible harm to both the greater glider and the yellow belly glider as a species. Uh, she went on to say, uh, and the well, for a start, it was taken to court by a couple of environmental groups, the King Lake Friends of the Forest and Environment East Gippsland, and they argued that Vic Forest had a legal obligation to identify and protect the two possum species in the forestry areas that it does around the area. This would have required the agency to do comprehensive surveys of any logging coops scheduled for harvesting and exclude their habitat from logging. Justice Richards told the court the law should be followed when there was a threat of serious or irreversible damage to vulnerable species, but Vic Forrest had argued this precautionary principle was not engaged or relevant and the measures it took had been adequate. She found the actions they'd taken to conserve gliders detected within a coop scheduled for harvest were inadequate. They were also not consistent with relevant scientific research. Vic Forrest's current approach falls short of what the precautionary principle requires for the conservation of greater gliders and yellow-bellied. The ecological evidence was that these gliders live in logging coops that are harvested in accordance with Vic Vic, uh, Forest's current practices and will probably die as a result of the harvesting operations. Sue McKinnon, president of King Lake Fringe of the Forest, said it's outrageous that the Department of Environment, in particular the Office of the Conservation Regulator, has not been regulating the laws around governing logging of Victoria's state forests. Um, a, Vic, a Vic Forest spokesperson said the organisation was disappointed by the court's decision and re- reviewing its options, so it thinks it's doing a pretty good job in not protecting them. But following that, I read that out, that was a couple of weeks ago, that actually happened. Mm. But this week there was an interesting report from what's described as a right-leaning think tank, Blueprint Institute, but it's done a study that shows that immediately ending ending native forest logging across Victoria's central highlands, one of the world's most intense carbon sinks, would generate an extra $60 million in benefits for the state this decade alone. Uh, They say... um, the Labor government has said it is spending two. Well, this is an interesting bit. The Labor government has said it is spending two hundred million dollars to keep the industry alive until twenty thirty, when they say they're going to stop it. Uh, but, but uh, Mr. Cross, is the bloke from this mob, the Blueprint Institute mob, said subsidies, which were not counted in uh, Blueprint's figures, were really about protecting five hundred to six hundred jobs, which are overwhelmingly CFMEU members. He claims, but. The other, there are other reasons for that as well I'll come to. Um, but 
it goes on to say, uh, they go on to say, the thing that uh, has really, really baffled us from analysing the Central Highlands as a case study is that for a long period of time it's been a completely loss-making government-subsidised industry that can't compete against plantation forests. So, mm. you know, the whole thing is... They, get, they make lots of other points about the finances of it, but they, they show that it would be, we'd be much better off financially even, let alone environmentally, leaving them alone. But the the, fig, the other point, about the 2030, of course, we've pointed this out before, the 2030 figure, which they decided on two years ago to, mm. to phase them out, was struck not because, you know, where they should, they should have said two years ago that all forest logging will stop from now. But the 2030 is because there's a Japanese company down there, down in Gippsland, um, which has a contract or 2030 with Vic Forests, and they would have had to pay them out. Um, to, um, I think they make paper or something or they take chips away or whatever. But anyway, the, they, there's, a, there's a 2030 contract and that's why they put it to 2030. But in the meantime, of course, Vic Forests and the logging industry can run rampant and there won't be much left by 2030 the way they're going. So uh, It's funny but, the links you can make when you follow the paper, when it you is, follow the paper trail. It is, isn't it? But the, uh, but as a ter- you know, as I say, the, the court found the other week that they're, you know, they're totally failing in the duty to protect even you know endangered species, let alone the forests themselves. And then you get a, a right-wing think tank saying, well, financially, looking at it, it's much better off if we don't log them and we're better off with tourism and other things. That, uh, And also in terms of their carbon sink role, of course, which they talk about. So, It's interesting you say how – talk about the, the unviable nature of it financially. It seems just as counterintuitive as the name Vic Forests itself, right? It does, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> – any thoughts on this one? Well, um, having a think about the Tasmanian area, um, it sounds like what happened with the uh, what is it, the hydroelectric idea, and when they had to bring in the World Heritage, Heritage Protection Act, um, so they did look at how. I suppose uh, the government would look at the economy, what would fuel the economy, the industry, construction, energy, mining resources, or tourism by looking at the beautiful parts of the forest and yep. the rainforest. Yep. So uh, that's a real lesson, and hopefully they do keep talking about the hydroelectric and how it was voted out in Tasmania. Yeah, so, that's right. Mm. And, of course, back in, in Tasmania, again, the current government is is threatening the forests all over again, unfortunately, and bringing in quite draconian uh, penalties Lawless. for people who who oppose or go out and if you want to go out and oppose it you're going to face quite draconian that penalties. seemed kind of specifically targeted towards environmental protesters as well yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. oh yes. god yes that's seen that way doesn't it mm. yeah surprise so i wonder surprise. if they still do a lot of the logging campaigns and a lot of the um, extreme form of environmentalism and activism i mean these days Hobart, Tasmania, they have so much to offer. Uh, they're dairy farmers. They're wonderful, uh, both cheese making and wine making. Uh, yeah. Professional, well, skill sets. They just have a lot more to offer. So, yes, you don't have to 
destroy forest to uh, to mm, do it. Mm. But on a more positive note, good God, on city limits, this is terrible. But uh, on, <laughs> a more posi- <laughs> on a more what positive next? note, a pioneering program run by Indigenous women to restore and protect the Great Barrier Reef is a finalist for one of the world's most prom- uh, prominent climate prizes. The group is among 15 projects to be named as nominees for the Earthshot Prize, the pet project of Prince William. Isn't that great? Oh, good old Prince William. Wow. And other climate advocates, including Academy Award winner actor Kate Blanchett and naturalist Sir David Attenborough, but it's good to see the Indigenous women of the Great Barrier Reef are among three finalists listed for the Revive Our Oceans category, a program that combines 60,000 years of knowledge with digital technologies to protect land and sea. Um, and it goes on, but uh, good on them, and let's hope they, they do well. Indeed. What's the, the prize, Kevin? Is it money? Oh, hang on. Um Yes, they'll be in the running to receive one of the five one million or one point seven seven million Australian dollars, one million pounds, checks at the second annual thingo. North Queensland Indigenous Rangers have proved vital to the reef's defence through ancient knowledge passed down from generation to generation with the most modern tools like drones that monitor coral changes, forest fires and land degradation. But until only recently, just 20% of the state's Indigenous Rangers were women, which led to both state and federal government investment in the Queensland Indigenous Women's Rangers Network. It has trained more than 60 women and encouraged new conservation approaches by sharing knowledge and telling stories. Members of the network have gone on to find work as rangers in Queensland or in conservation elsewhere, and on it goes. But that's uh, good. It's good very news. interesting. Yeah. I would like to read a little bit more about that, but probably can't comment until... No, but despite that, the barrier reef remains in grave danger, of course, which is a yeah. real problem, a real problem. That's right. Now, you'll be pleased to know that Bridget McKenzie, she of the whiteboard uh, sports rorts, etc., um, you might recall when all that happened, Morrison referred the matter for a report to Phil Gaitchens, the head of the public service, who he, whom he'd appointed, of course, and who was an ex-liberal staffer and liberal apparatchik. Uh, so out from outside the public service, he appointed Phil Gaitchens to run the public service in his department, uh, who uh, had a, a history uh, with the government, and we all predicted then that the report uh, well, never did come out, actually. It just got, but it's finally been released. Uh, but he, he, he completely he says um, that um, there's nothing to show that, uh, that there was any bias in, in handing out these things. The only thing he criticises her for, which was raised at the time, she didn't mention she was a member of a gun club that got some of the money, and he said that was an oversight that she should have. She, she, so, um, but uh, other than that, his report uh, didn't think it was anything wrong in, in, the, in the sports rorts that weren't rorts, apparently. They just happened to be the best, uh, best for the job. Wow. Um, but uh, she, you'll be, Bridget, Bridget says she, she uh, look, she said she'd been hard done by by the report. Well, only the one criticism of her was that she was in this mob. Anyway, she said she'd, uh, she, she refused to agree she'd be hard done by, but she said, oh, I've absolutely no regrets about my decisions at the time, which is very good of her. And uh, the fact that, uh, well, I'm sure she hasn't. Uh, just she probably only regret was that people sprung the fact that it was uh, a rort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to top up my tea. You want a bit more tea? I'm going to. I would love some more tea. All right, I'll just put a bit more in your cup. If you... Here we are. We're going to have to get up over the... Well, leave them on. Yeah. <laughs> there you are.
We're now miles from the mic. <laughs> Reckon people can hear us in the far, far distance. Uh, now, here we, here we are. We're right. Uh, now, also, there's been a lot of um, complaints about this current uh, Government Industrial Relations Act, of course, which uh, apparently um, it's going to make life absolutely wonderful for workers and absolutely disastrous for employers because uh, it means that employ- workers might even get some money, although it's highly doubtful. Uh, but you'll be pleased to know the Australian Resources and Energy Employer Association has been running full-page ads this week uh, pointing out how great they are. Energy res- Australia's resources industry provides employment for over a million people, the highest wages of any sector, record federal and state taxes and royalties, question mark over that one big time, record investment creating more high-paid jobs. Our successes come from employers and employees working together, broad arrangements <laughs> to accommodate varying interests, next to no industrial disputes, circa 10% union membership, well, no industrial disputes because it's illegal. Um, the Albanese government and legal thanks to Peter Reith, who died last week, uh, yep. sadly. The Albanese, the Albanese government's industrial relations bill has no link to productivity or business success, undermines enterprise decisions of employers and employees, encourages strikes across multiple businesses, <coughs> increases the power of union bosses at the expense of employees. See, when you say boss, it's good, but if you say union boss, it's a pejorative, <laughs> it's really bad. A union boss is bad and Majority a, a, a caring employer boss is good, good, good. No thanks, they put in great big red thing. A return to 70s style industrial conflict will damage Australia's economy and jobs. We ask the Albanese government to protect the strength, work with us, not against us, etc., etc. So there you are. And that's one of many because you, you have industry all over the place crying out and screaming about how they're going to be affected and they want protection. So terrible. Wow. And, and really, bloody unions and workers aren't they a threat? Oh, they're just getting in the yeah, way of the yeah. the utopian relationship yeah. that workers have with their with but their I, employees. I reckon employees you know workers right? cause so much trouble to employers. We see it all the time. They complain about them wanting wages for God's sake. So greedy. You know, look, you know, why don't they just get rid of workers altogether? Why doesn't the board go out? <laughs> the board go out and do the work. You know, Gina could go and dig up her own mine. Go down there and dig it up. Um, so could so could Twitty and all the others, and and just get rid of the workers if they're such a big problem. Get rid of them. It's good. It's just, that's problem just solved. Chaff. Problem just solved. Just get rid of that chaff. Yes, problem solved. So I don't know. Yeah, and I'll, look, we'll go to Shane in a second. But there was one other I did want to raise. Um, the <laughs> Uh, no, it wasn't. No, that wasn't the one. Actually, we'll, we'll, we'll go to Shane. Look, ex- well, it was a, just a nice one. But the Herald Sun. Last Friday, which was uh, the 11th of the 11th, they had a front-page picture of a horse and a jockey and a horse to do with war and a school kid in military outfit. Oh, wow. Now, that, that would be, you know, if, if, if a so-called country we didn't like did that with a young child, that would be brainwashing. But in Australia, it's trained, teaching them about real history, the history of killing people and slaughtering people and doing that sort of thing. The 11th, 11th, of course, uh, is much more significant for other reasons. One, it was the day poor old Ned Kelly got hung, um, such is life. I'm not sure what such is life meant in terms of about to be hung, but anyway, that's what he said. Um, 
And <laughs> the other one was the 11th, the 11th was the day, whatever number, of 70, 75. So what's that? 25 plus 22, 37, 47 years ago. 47 years ago was the day that uh, Kerr sacked Whitlam. Um, I think that's much more significant than uh, honouring train killing, in my opinion. But there you are. I think so too, Kevin. I feel like we've solved the world's problems this morning. Yeah, more or less. We'll solve a few more on housing very shortly. Let's let's go to Shane McGrath and uh, and see what we can find out. Twenty Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. Twenty Years on the Inside. I'm Vicky Roach, and I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness, and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nessolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR supporter. Okay, and uh, on the line we have Shane McGrath from the Housing with the Aged Action Group. Uh, Shane, um, just um, on a little personal matter, I know you uh, last month you didn't come on because you, you had COVID and Fiona York from the organisation came on, but you tell me you're, you're still feeling pretty tired and stuck with it. Are you, are you starting, feeling, starting to feel better at all? Uh, I mean, I feel much better than I did this time last month. Uh, I hope Fiona, you know, did a serviceable job in my absence. The, um, but yeah, I, I mean, like I won't embarrass people, you, but she was much better actually. Oh well, <laughs> see you later. The, um, <laughs> uh, like a lot of people, you know, since I've recovered from COVID, I, I have found that I've got quite low energy and, and get tired a lot, uh, and hoping that's just going to keep getting better. 
Yeah, all right. Well, good luck with that, comrade. Yeah. Okay, now, um, how's it with Ace Action Group? Any issues this week you wanted to raise? Um, well, what I'm, uh, we'll see. I don't know what Fiona talked about last month, so I worry I'm just going to be repeating what she's done uh, better than I could. But um, one thing that we've been, well, that I've been working on quite a lot is the Retirement Villages Act review. So the, the government released its draft uh, amendments to the Retirement Villages Act, which is a, a sort of process we've been involved in for a long time. Um, they gave a, a very brief period for people to read and respond to the legislation. Uh, I think it was, it was definitely under a month, um, which is you know, quite short for a very substantial piece of work. Um, but, of course, we've entered caretaker mode for the Victorian government ahead of the state election, so they're not allowed to take any more feedback, uh, and it will be up to whoever the new government is to, to decide what they want to do. Um, so... Uh, can I just sort of talk through uh, Hag's uh, view of the of the proposed changes? Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, overall, lots of things improve in the amendments, uh, which, you know, is not a surprise because the existing retirement village law is, is so bad, so weak, so uh, insufficient that you would, you know, you'd have a hard time not improving on it with, you know, really any set of changes. Um some of the things that improve that I think are worth mentioning is that there's going to be standardised contracts. Um, the complexity and diversity of contracts in retirement villages has been a, a big problem for residents for a long time. Um, there are some fairer rules about the distribution of capital gains. Uh, this, you know, often in re- well, not often, but it happens in retirement villages that there are very inequitable ways of organising the, the capital gain, the, the profit essentially that you make. Uh, when you sell a unit for more than you bought it for, um, where often that can be retained by the retirement village, even though uh, the increase in value is is largely a result of things that you've done yourself uh, or been required to pay for. Uh, And they get rid of no reason terminations, which sort of brings it in line with the changes to the uh, Residential Tenancies Mm. Act a a couple of years ago that got rid of no reason to vacate. Um, so lots of things that are sort of small or important, fairly important improvements, but doesn't really address what we would see as the big issues for retirement village residents and for our members in particular. Uh, so HAG, along with some of our partner organisations, like the Residents of Retirement Villages Victoria and CODA uh, and uh, Consumer Action, have been advocating for a shift towards a rights-based approach to, to retirement villages where the legislation would clarify and protect the rights that residents should have. Uh, The government hasn't done that. They decided that a rights-based approach uh, wasn't appropriate uh, for whatever reasons, Uh, and instead they've decided to just introduce some principles which are just a bit airy-fairy and non-specific and don't seem to be really uh, enforceable in any way. Um, and the last thing that retirement village residents need is more sort of like airy-fairy motherhood statements that, that they can't actually, you know, rely on. Um, and it also doesn't really address the big problems with exit fees that we've seen uh, reported by, you know, big news organisations like 730 Report. Uh, a lot of the big public concern about retirement villages uh, that is very well founded is that these exit fees, the fee structures, the financial models, are super exploitative uh, and the legislation doesn't really do anything to protect residents against some of the uh, abuses and exploitative practices that we've seen in the sector, which is incredibly disappointing to us and we think would be a, a massive lost opportunity. So on that, can, can the owners of these places just charge what they like? 
well, it's uh, <laughs> a good question. It's a little bit hard to answer. Um, I mean, what you what you pay for a retirement village is determined by your contract, but they have very wide latitude in uh, setting the contractual terms. So um, it, it's not that we think that individual retirement villages are setting particularly onerous, uh, you know, exit fees, that there are particular villages that are doing this in an unfair way. What we think is that the, the, the industry standard is unfair. The industry standard is already very exploitative. Uh, it encourages bad practices, bad management of retirement villages. It encourages them to do things like churn residents out, pressure them to leave um, once they've once they've paid as much as they're going to pay, or once their exit fees are as high as they're going to get, so those are the sorts of things that we would like to see reformed. Um, the amendments also introduce something which, theoretically or, or sort of purportedly, is a response to an existing problem, but really seems like it's more of a new problem of its own, uh, which is about dispute resolution. So at the moment, the main forum for dispute resolution for retirement village residents is VCAT's civil claims list. Uh, and uh, overwhelmingly, uh, retirement village residents have said that doesn't work for them. Uh, people who have been have found it inaccessible, uh, and many people prefer just not to, to even try and take a dispute there because it is so inaccessible, uh, so costly, the power imbalances are so so severe, mm. uh, the consequences of loss are... Uh, you know, such a concern. The adversarial approach is, is not helpful. Um, so the amendments introduce a new a new dispute resolution body uh, run by someone called the Chief Dispute Resolution Officer, which in, in large is a sort of mediation service. They'll try and uh, resolve disputes by mediating to, to reach an agreement between the parties, between a resident and a manager, a management and operator. Uh, but they also have powers to make binding orders that aren't by agreement, so they can just in, sort of impose a resolution on the parties. Um, the, the government says that it does this in part because it acknowledges that there's a power imbalance between residents and operators that makes dispute resolution difficult. But it's very hard for me to see... There doesn't seem to be any evidence for the proposition or any argument for the proposition that a mediation service that tries to resolve things by agreement is in any way redressing an existing power imbalance. Uh, if anything, it's, it's going to favour the more pa powerful party. Uh, so we're quite disappointed. What, what we and our partner organisations have been calling for is a retirement housing ombudsman. And I note that uh, VCOS has also been calling more generally for a housing ombudsman, so we'd see those as, as compatible or sort of dovetailing proposals. Uh, the advantage of an ombudsman over this, this mediation model is that an ombudsman is designed specifically to redress power imbalances between consumers and providers. Uh, and that's mainly because they're a consumer-facing sort of dispute resolution. You know? mm. It's the consumer who goes to the telecommunications ombudsman. You know, Telstra doesn't go to the telecommunications ombudsman because you haven't paid your bill, because Telstra has the power to sort that out themselves. You know, They're not going to have a problem that they can't get you to pay. Um, whereas the, the chief dispute resolution officer, you go there, sure, but so does the operator. The operator goes there, you know, because they want to kick you out because they think you can't live independently anymore. They go there because they want to get orders that you have to behave differently. So it, it's very difficult to see that that's going to redress an existing power imbalance that is acknowledged, widely acknowledged, acknowledged by the government, uh, and, but they've just proposed this mechanism 
that that doesn't seem and hasn't been argued to actually address the problem that they say they've acknowledged. Yeah, it's interesting, Shane, that you mentioned about that power imbalance because years ago when, when what became VCAT was first set up, uh, I think it was by the Hamer government going way, way back, in fact, uh, it was supposed to be a, a, a disputes resolution p- p- um, body where no lawyers were involved and the parties simply met and resolved their differences or attempted to. And it grew like topsy from there and, and you suddenly had the development of, of silk specialising in, in the practice who mainly appear, of course, for the developers and for the, the, the side that we don't usually aren't on. Um, but, it, you know, it grew to the point where now there is this incredible inequality you talk about um, from what was supposed to be a simple body, like perhaps a bit like the one, the mediation one you're talking about, in fact, um, which, could in, which could develop the same way. So, yeah, it's interesting to see that. Yeah, I think it's widely agreed that VCAT is pretty dysfunctional in, in at least in the areas that that Hague's involved in, which really is the the residential tenancies and the civil claims. Mm. Um, it's one of the only things that we can uh, agree with our enemies, the retire, you know, the Real Estate Institute of Victoria or the, you know, the retired village operators. Uh, we all agree. VCAT is terrible. <laughs> so, uh, also so, the hardest thing for the government to fix, apparently. So where does this inquiry go from here with the election on, going on? Well, nobody can say. So the government's not allowed to say, the bureaucrats aren't allowed to say. They, we all have to assume that we don't know who the next government will be. Well, I think we probably take a pretty safe guess. Um, so we're just waiting for a new government to decide what they will do. Um, I, I do ass- My expectation, my assumption is that whoever the new government is, uh, is going to pick up the review again and have to do some further consultation because the, the 28 days or whatever it was they gave us just wasn't enough. Um, and, uh, I mean, I think it's going to be a pretty hard decision for HAG whether we would support the legislation or not if it went forward in the, the form that it's in now. Um, it, like I said, it, it does improve some things, but there's also some big concerns about it. So we're hoping that the government will address some of those concerns and bring us some legislation that we could enthusiastically support. Uh, but otherwise, we'll have to decide uh, what our response is going to be. So we'll keep an eye on it after the election. This, by the way, um, speaking of after the election, this is our last housing day for the year because the next third Wednesday is the 21st of December, right before Christmas. So, uh, there you go. so you, you won't be back to report on this until February, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 we, well, we might have an answer by then, of course. I hope the listeners can stand to wait for that. Oh, look, they... really <laughs> they'll be on tether hooks all over the break. <laughs> the uh, last month, Fiona did talk about um, a problem at well, what she, she perceived to be a problem at uh, Ross House itself, where your office is in Flinders Lane, about it letting out. Um, a part of the place to a commercial catering or commercial coffee sort of place. Uh, is mm-hmm. that what's happened to that? Yeah, so I understand that those those plans are still going ahead. I'm not quite sure where things were at when Fiona was in last month, but there was a special general meeting. Uh, what do you call it? An extraordinary general meeting called by uh, Ross House members or tenants who uh, were uh, unhappy with the proposal to turn the ground floor over to a commercial, uh, I think, restaurant or, or wine bar or something. Um, but the, uh, the, the motion that was put um, to prevent that d- didn't get up. Um, the members voted against it. So uh, Ross House, as I understand it, intends to continue with those plans to try and get a commercial tenant on the ground floor. 
Oh, well, it's... Uh, I'm I'm quite sceptical that this will ever happen because Ross House is just a bit special and it's hard for me to believe that anyone's going to pay a lot of money to set up a restaurant that's, you know, immediately over a quite fragrant recycling depot. Uh, if anyone's ever been to Ross House, you know, the ground or first floor, you've smelt that basement, I tell you what. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're still going ahead with those plans. And also, of course, that part of town around De Grave Street and Flinders Lane desperately needs another coffee lounge or wine bar, doesn't it? Yeah, if there's anything that's hard to get around Flinders Lane, it's, uh, it's a, a decent coffee or meal. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you know, Fiona made me a bet the other day that I wouldn't be able to find a hot dog within the block. <laughs> she was out of her mind. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. just to finish up, um, I got a thing in the mail in the letterbox yesterday telling me what a wonderful person my local federal member of parliament is. Uh, and he told us that in our first budget we had delivered with the lots of ticks and ticks, but one of the ticks is more affordable housing. Uh, any comment on the budgetary housing policy at all you've thought about? Uh I mean, the, the federal government needs to do much more. Federal and state governments need to do much more to create actual uh, public housing in particular, social housing, you know, to an extent, if we can't get the public housing. But, you know, affordable housing, they're not they're, they're not really building enough of it, and it's an inadequate approach anyway. Mm. It's that sort of, you know, 80% of market rate garbage when, uh, you know, 80% of market rate is, is still totally unaffordable for, for, lots, for most people. That's right. I mean, affordable housing is so relative, isn't it? Relevant, relative. Um, as yeah. we keep saying, if you're uh, homeless in uh, in the city somewhere, then affordable means nothing. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, if you're on New Start, then 80% of market rent is, is not going to be affordable for you. No, absolutely not. Well, you're on age pension. Even much less than that for rent. I mean, that's exactly right. All right. Well, look, we're going to have to go, Shane. Get on to our next well, sorry, people. Sorry, but... sorry. Can, I get, can I get one more comment in before yeah, you go? Yeah, OK. Have a go. Um, so HAG has its annual general meeting coming up this Friday. Uh, if you're interested in what HAG's doing and would like to find out more, uh, you can come along in person at Ross House. Uh, that's on Flinders Lane in Melbourne. Uh, or you can come along uh, online via Zoom. Um HAG members and supporters can both attend. Obviously, if you're not a member, you can't vote. Uh, if you're an older person, it's free to become a member. Um, so you can find out more about that on our website at oldertenants.org.au. You'll see a little uh, events button on the front page. Or you can give us a call on 9654 7389. 654 7389. Yeah, is it? What time is that, by the way? You didn't mention that. Uh, from, sorry, from 11 to 1. So if you come in person, you ah, will get a feed. And right. We'll so one about, of those wonderful lunches on as well. One of those wonderful lunches. Oh, well. And we'll be talking about our state election, what we want out of the state election, uh, what we need to see from the state government, things like that. Uh, sadly, HAG has still not formally adopted my preferred uh, retirement housing policy, which is to nationalise the retirement villages. But. <laughs> Uh, nevertheless, come along and find out what we are advocating for. Well, it's sort of almost not, not retirement villages, but in aged care, the government's going to pick up the increases now in wages. So I suppose that's, in a sense, that's nationalising it. Well, it's, it's the classic approach of nationalising the costs and privatising the profits, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Okay. Look, Shane, thanks for your time. Thanks for your help all year. And we are going to have to finish um, on the second Wednesday next month because of the way the calendar falls. We've got a fifth Wednesday this month, which uh, throws us back. But um, we'll catch up with you in February, and thanks for all your help this year. Oh, no worries. Thanks for having us on. And, uh, yeah, Merry Christmas to the listeners, or Happy Holidays, or, or whatever you've done.
Okay, thanks, Shane. Right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Shane McGrath there from the Housing with Age Action Group, and when we come back, we'll talk to uh, two public housing tenants, Catherine and Jack. Also, we didn't mention it, but would highly recommend listening to Hag's show on 3CR. Raise the roof fortnightly Wednesdays um, at 5.30 in the Arvo. Indigenous people in Australia and the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing. And this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives saying that, yes, there is uh, certain hazards, but only to primitive peoples, those that don't wear clothes and don't wash, unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning, that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice. And as we fast forward to today, we see that same thing. 3CR, keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time, it's important to have a voice like 3CR, steady, constant, sane and committed to a nuclear-free Australia. There are now 189 people on hunger strike. 62 have sewn their lips together, including two women and five children. For Woomera, this isn't an unusual day. We have an old saying in Persia that says, there is no darker color than black. So we were in the camp, we have two options. Are they deporting us to back to persecution, to prison, to death, or die in the camp. But I think you guys give us a third option, which is another try. They bent like half-cooked spaghetti. We didn't expect it to happen like that, to the soundtrack of Amelie, a popular French movie at the time, blowing across the desert from dusty speakers. The fence began to fall, under the weight of people wanting justice under the weight of people that had had enough. Join us for Woomera Stories on Monday, November 21st and November 28th at 6pm on 3CR. Already they've set up camp only 200 metres from the Woomera Detention Centre's main gate. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains. And the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Okay, on the line we have uh, our regular public housing advocates and and tenants, um, Catherine Murdoch and Jack Burden. And um, just... uh, this month, I, I thought one thing I did want to comment on, and it happened a few months ago actually, but I thought we've never really commented on it. But the 
The Ombudsman, Deborah Glass, the Victorian Ombudsman, she highly criticised the government a little while ago at a book launch for its failure to apologise to public housing um, residents locked up during that North Melbourne lockdown during COVID, which we were all critical of at the time. And she says a key recommendation from her... um, from her investigation was that the Victorian government should apologise to the Tower residents and the many who were without food, essential medical and other supplies, no, no, um, no access to fresh air and surrounded by police. And she makes the point, where did, these, where did the uh, commentators think the 3,000 residents of the public housing were going to get food or chicken, were they going to chicken to a hotel or something if they went out? We all went into lockdown, and we, but the rest of us, she makes the point, were able to at least go out and buy food, etc. But these people were treated badly. Uh, it's going back to it, but it's, uh, it's an interesting comment again. You've caught me on the um, back foot there, but the latest, as far as I'm concerned, is that there's a class action underway. So um, there was a decision Mm, that there has to be a form of justice for those tenants and some sort of precedent has to be set to ensure that it never happens again. Um, So that was what I heard of it last. Um, I don't know whether Jack's got something he can add to it. Yeah, I think you're right there. It's a class action thing happening there. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens, but it's just interesting that she she was quite quite critical of the government. In fact, she said she was so she was really incensed by the fact that at least they hadn't apologised to these people and claim they still did the right thing. I mentioned to um, to Shane before that, as I said, the local member sent me this thing, and one of his ticks is more affordable housing from the first budget. Uh, you comment on that? I'm sure you got comments on that one. The word affordable housing is bastardising what the human need is. Um, And, you know, social housing, as we know, is not the answer. It's just propaganda that doesn't service the needs of people. And, you know, if you're on the street talking to our homeless community in the last two weeks during this vile weather, they are desperate. And they're angry. They're angry that MPs are getting paid $192,000 and that capitalism is killing them. It's leaving them on the street. Social housing doesn't put people in need in safe, ongoing accommodation. Um, And it's hard enough with the cost of living and everything else that's happening for these people to survive on a day-to-day basis. You know, with the stresses and the cost of living, domestic violence is through the roof as well. And, you know, once again, we've got to say, where's the public housing stock for people who are victims? Who's keeping them safe? Who's giving them access to social services and support services? You know, that it's got to change this election. Capitalism isn't the answer, and socialism is the only chance. It's the only way we're going to make a dent. You know, Dan Andrews, he's building another youth prison at Werribee as he has torn our public housing apart. It's just beyond disgusting and cruel. I um, actually did an analysis of what the um, budget announcement was about and um, also listened to some press conferences where the politicians were 
giving out their messages. It's, it's, it's quite disturbing. Um, the public got very confused. The announcement was about one million affordable homes by um, you know, 2030, and that's like one million? Where are you going to get the tradies and all that sort of from? Well, in the announcement, that's that's... All I can say is that's what they call an aspirational target because there's actually no nothing in the budget for it. Uh, what I can say, say, just as Captain said, is that there is sadly zero public housing. It's, it looks like it's a policy designed by Dracula running the blood bank, in this case a policy designed by developers. Um, if I time, I'll just briefly go through the numbers. Um, 10,000 10, properties funded over five years. Now, this is affordable. $350 million. That was actually the only dollar amount in the budget. Now, someone in the, um, the department must have got their um, decimal points wrong because 10,000 divided into $350 million is $35,000 each house. So I suspect there was 1,000 houses, and that will make it $350,000 each, which might be more in the right ballpark, or else their budget was 10 times too small. <laughs> so uh, 10,000 homes um, from existing commitments by the states and territories, whatever that means. And then there's this thing called uh, 30,000 homes via the... $10 million Australian Housing Australian Future Fund. And it says that's an off-budget amount of $10 billion. So, so again, this sounds like financial um, smoke and mirrors. Um, nothing there. And the message was so that we can build these houses near where people work. And a bit like what Catherine just says, well... It doesn't help if you're on one of the lowest wages in the land and then, you know, which is what a lot of the healthcare people are or whatever, and you get the, you get to now rent at 80% of market rate, which is still unaffordable anyway. Um, now, I'll just, now, I'll give you the clues what Anthony Albanese said in one of his press conferences. I actually took notes during it. He made a point of saying, Oh, this is a budget about affordable rental housing. So, in other words, he's crossing off. We're not talking about home purchase. Then he said, all levels of government, federal, state and local, need to support this with land release and zoning. Now, that's the little key there. Land release and zoning is code for giving away public land to these developers and also doing, you know, basically bastardising what are decent zoning regulations so they can build more density on this land. And then his final point was, oh, and the government needs to also make a contribution to what is now a marginal investment to make it more attractive for investors. Yep. So they're talking about a housing policy that's going to be run by investors and the government's going to actually give them profits. Yeah, I was yeah. Going to, Jack, I was going to come to that because, in fact, their policy is a mixture of affordable and rental, but yeah. they want they want all levels of government plus 
superannuation and investment funds and the private sector to be involved. Now, once you've got, and in fact, the superannuation funds are say they're happy to be involved as long as the government guarantees them up to an 11% return on investment. Oh, my um, goodness. Now, if that's the cut, well, they say between they need a return of between 6 and 11%, which mm. will involve government subsidies. So, really, why you, why you bring them in, I can't work out. If you're going to have to subsidise them anyway, you may as well just do it yourself. Yeah. Well, for a starter, um, if, if we do it ourselves, we can actually charge people a 25% of their low income and make it affordable. Public housing is affordable to all because you only ever pay 25%. Whereas affordable housing is only affordable to the people that can afford that much higher rate of rental. It's, mm. As I said, it's a policy designed by Dracula running the blood bank. And it's, it's a policy designed by the... Well, actually, you hit it, hit it there just on, in terms of who the investors are. Um, it's, it's a community housing industry association, the Master Builders Association, um, the Superannuation Industry Fund Association. So it's, it's all the buyers in of um, just another feeding frenzy for developers. So where's the social element to this policy? There is none. It's, it's actually unbelievably sad we have a, a, a government of a party that had, you know, social uh, awareness as part of its you know, mandate in, when it first started to now just be working with, you know, very, very profitable um, businesses. And this stuff doesn't happen by accident. This has all happened by lobbying in the back rooms uh, from very powerful lobbying organisations. Mm. Catherine, I've got reams of stuff about this, this policy and uh, comments from the superannuation industry and the private sector but the words public housing never get mentioned. Affordable, social, community. Um, yeah. Public housing's gone off the agenda altogether. And that's, that's exactly the case. It's been off the agenda for the last 20 years. And, you know, as Jack was saying, it's crimes against humanity. You know, there's an obligation. There's an obligation to provide people with housing that's safe and ongoing. And on the pittance that people are paid um, on new start and on the pensions, it's got to be rent capped at 25%. There's got to be at least 150,000 new properties. They have to start maintaining the properties that they have. You know, they've been running them down and we had the action at the minister's office in Mooney Pond mm. last month. He locked his doors. But we were vocal and there was a lot of housing groups and political groups and tenants there saying, you can't let us live with mould on our walls. If we have a disability, you have to look after us. And it's this whole hideous privatisation running down public assets and people are crippled. People are beyond crippled. They are really hurting and it's, it's they're crimes against humanity, and it's just, you know, disgusting. But as I said, we continue to invest in prisons. We continue to incarcerate people. We don't care if they've got a home before they're locked up, if they've got a home after they're locked up. You know, the prison industry itself is another privately run industry that is raking in the money and causing incredible 
trauma and harm and it's dangerous for our vulnerable people. 70% of people incarcerated have disabilities. We have to start caring for people. Mm. And that is with public housing. Absolutely. Not social, That's the... not affordable. We know that if you're lucky enough to get a foot in the door of social housing, you will be in the back block like a discarded piece of trash because these governments are pe- treating people like they are trash. Yeah, we're going to have to wind up here, unfortunately, but... Um... It's, we need to. Uh, well, the police will take your point, though, that we just, what we need is public housing to treat people humanely. Let's finish on that note. Um, and look, thanks for your efforts this year, because as I mentioned earlier, because the way the calendar falls, but this is our last housing day for the year, because the next one is right before Christmas, the next third Wednesday. Um, but look, thanks to both of you for being so helpful to us all year, and we'll get back to you in February. We're back in February, and uh, so we'll pick all this up again in February but as I say thank you for your your help all year well thank you and thanks 3CR for you know coming in and covering the homes not prisons action at parliament and thank you for enabling us to um you know be a voice for the people and let's hope that when we come back in February that it's an even even territory that we're standing on (laughs) let's hope so okay look Jack and Catherine thanks so much to both of you and uh We'll talk next year. Yep, take care all. Okay. Bye. That's City Limits, and next week we've got... Um, we're going to be looking at, I think, Preston Market is one issue next week we're going to look at, so um, with Zeb's back, and she's lining that up, so there we are. Okay, time to go. Joe wants to come on the studio, so let's, uh, let's get Joe. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.